Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Pound. The murmur of crickets and frog hoppers hangs in the air as we pass by mango and balata trees. Kiskadee birds dip and dive between them while the sweat of bright daytime sun is countervailed by the threat of heavy storms and biblical rains. On today's show, we're transporting you back to 1940s Trinidad and our time machine, well, it's a new novel, Hungry Ghosts by Kevin Jared Hussain. But before the setting, rich with pastoral sights and sounds, begins to feel idyllic, let me assure you, this is a troubled paradise. Still some years from the British granting Trinidad independence, religious tensions, class differences and poverty plague the country. Hungry Ghost explores how these difficulties affect one community, Bell Village. There, in ramshackle barracks that house the local labourers, Hans and his wife Shweta tried to create a better life for their son Krishna. Overlooking the village, Dalton and Mali Changur live in luxury, a world away from the struggles of other members of their community. The novel is linguistically intriguing as Trinidadian history becomes entwined with the personal stories and struggles of those in Bell Village. The result is a tale that at once feels the weight of colonialism while being deeply human. I was delighted to be joined in the studio by Kevin Jared Hussain, and here he is setting up our conversation with a reading, the moment in which Mali Changur realises that her husband has disappeared. The morning after the note, Mali went downstairs to prepare breakfast. Dalton wasn't there. Usually, he would be at the kitchen table with his bifocals, skimming the newspaper. He brewed his own coffee and drank until his nerves were shut, preferred imported Arabica to the locally grown Robusta. Marley maintained the house, did the washing, the folding, the sweeping, the dusting, chopping, the cooking, the baking. Did it for her own sake, at least. There were never any guests, soirees, coffee clutches, birthday parties. The living room, kitchen, bedrooms, the wainscoted staircase only held memories of them both. Because of this, the house always felt like some concealed shrine. The wordless stillness of the house now made the gloom of the air more apparent, its silence holy and eerie. For most of the day, she was a ghost, roaming a haunted manor. If he wasn't in the kitchen, perhaps Dalton was in the outhouse a single-room shed that he had fashioned into some sort of strange sanctum, an infium that held nothing of a giant oil painting of a Chinese goddess. He made it clear she was never to enter unless he was there too. As if she were too profane for it, the goddess, like the dogs, had been there before her. The goddess, draped in lavender and topped with a phoenix crown, was surrounded by four jade maidens and giant messenger blackbirds. Marley very slowly turned the knob, tipping the door open. Dust wafted like snowfall within the dim, tomb-like room. Dalton wasn't there. The goddess and her maidens glared at her sternly, as if she had interrupted some invocation. It was only recently that Dalton had shared the goddess's name with Marley, Ji Wang Mu. Queen Mother of the West. One day, Dalton admitted that his mother's soul had been absorbed by the painting and spoke to him through the canvas. She also learned that the apparition had once been impressed with her and even suggested his marriage to her, but no more. 
His mother now saw Mali as a liar and a charlatan. That woman isn't devoted, Dalton. He confessed that there was little he could do to change his mother's mind. All of this he had divulged unprovoked. Marley married Dalton knowing he was unsound of mind, but his condition had significantly worsened over the past five years. Paranoia, dementia, monomania, she wasn't sure how to describe it. He had rooms with towers of newspapers and magazines and boxes and all sorts of ephemera. Flew into rages at the slightest mention of tidying those rooms. The house itself was a hodgepodge of things foreign and colonial and antebellum and pretty and gold and red and scintillating. It was ungainly and disgusting, just like him. Kevin, it's wonderful to have you on the programme today. Congratulations on a well-reviewed, beautifully received debut novel, Hungry Ghosts. I wondered if you could set the scene for us a little bit. We're in 1940s Trinidad. What is special about that time? Why did you set it in that particular time? It seems like one realm is retreating and another is, is coming to the fore. But, but maybe you could give us a bit of background on the time you chose. It is 1940s Trinidad is a, a bit of a liminal space in Caribbean history because at the time the British colonial machinery that was so embedded into the, the island and its very culture is now winding down. At the same time, it's World War II and there's been a rumor of Nazi boats in the Caribbean Sea. So the Americans have now moved in. They've actually pushed out a fishing village to set up a naval base that runs through the northern part of the island. Of course, with Americans, the influx of Americans comes American culture. And there's this newfound sense of freedom and being the master of your own fate, kind of like, you know, you're selling the American dream now to these locals because they've been so, the locals have been so accustomed to a kind of British stiffness that now they've seen, they're seeing these Americans now who are quite laissez-faire and carefree. And that is specific to this time because during this time, the 1940s in Trinidad, it is a time where the old Trinidad is, is sort of being killed off and there's a new one ready to be born. And there are some locals that are quite ready to become masters of this new Trinidad. But it is at what cost, at what sacrifice do you have to be? What sacrifices do you have to take to get control of your own life when this new place comes around? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating time and it's so well chosen for that. I suppose there's sort of these sort of shifting tectonic plates of who's in charge of who's the master kind of thing. And I suppose it's one sort of colonialism giving way to another sort of colonialism it might be kinder and it might be more of a cultural colonialism but nonetheless there are a lot of sort of as you mentioned a lot and this is so central to the book I I think there are sort of shifting belief systems as well and you know Hindus are front and center in your novel what was the status of Hindus um, in the kind of periodic table of of religious elements as it were (laughs) what was the status of hindus in 1940s trinidad to be hindu back then you might as well have been alien or martial (laughs) because the the culture the food the style of dress the words that they use were so foreign to the rest of trinidad because well the indented laborers came because slavery was abolished so those who 
you know, after slavery, the former enslaved would have already set up house and so on in Trinidad. Not saying it was the best, you know, it was the best conditions for them at that time. But when the indented, the East Indian indented laborers came to Trinidad, they came with such strange beliefs that it none of it seemed to fit with this new Trinidad that was, was supposed to be formed. Yeah, so Hindus were very much looked down upon. In fact, in the in the, the capitals, Gazette, the newspaper that they had, they were still they weren't even referred to as Indians, just they referred to as coolies, like if it is a derogatory term. Like a servant. It obviously it yeah. meant servants, but mm. for us in the Caribbean it's actually like a slur. So it was quite out in the open that, you know, it would be in print. So seeing that alone, like seeing like old archive newspapers with that word in there, kinda gives you the idea of how, you know, Hindus and East Indians were looked looked yeah. down upon at that time. Just while we're sort of still setting the scene of Hungry Ghosts, Kevin, maybe you can refer to some of your characters, actually, but what sort of jobs did the Hindus do if, you, if they were the sort of lowest of the class system in Trinidad at this time? What sort of jobs were they doing and did they manage to kind of rise up out of that status? Right, in the 1940s, most of the time they would have occupied the jobs of the former enslaved. So it would have been uh, mostly working in the fields. They would have given, like, tasks to either cut cane or take after um, livestock or things like that. Difference here is that they were offered parcels of land, let's say after five years of work. Sometimes that land, most of the times that land would actually be swamp land. It wouldn't be anything yeah, to survive on. on yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it'd be uninhabitable. So they would have lived in barracks at the time, would have, which would have been connected to these estates. So they would have been in a kind of limbo in a way because now, you know, they've worked, they've, they've done the time for the estate, but now there's nowhere to go. And they're pretty much out of civilization and they can't be accepted into other parts of the country. So there's a running team in the book where, you know, you could have a house, you could have a shelter, but in your own country, it, is, it isn't home. And that is the, the basis for a lot of the characters in the book. You mentioned the word limbo there, and I feel like there's such a lot of that. Where so much of the book um, is on the kind of seesaw between people are having to make choice between one thing and another. There, there's, there is an idea like limbo of somewhere between the, the the world and the underworld as well. You mentioned right at the end the Orphic, the Orphic Dawn or something as well, which is a really lovely, uh, lovely idea. And and there's so there there are these kind of there are these kind of narrative there are these tropes i suppose these literary tropes in it limbo and there's a bit of fable and greek tragedy and all these sorts of ingredients in the soup that you've 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 served us up um did you draw on these did they, did these do these flow from from your pen or are these kind of very definite marker points some using some of the some of the some of the spice of these kind of sort of you know ancient tropes these tragedy and things and these fables it does give stories a, a type of timelessness if you were to imbue the literature with that. Something that actually drew some inspiration from exactly in the beginning quote of the book is the Mahabharata. Mm. And the, there's a part of the book where the character, one of the future kings, literally has to visit hell in order for him to know what hell is. Because, a, you know, a prince would not necessarily know mm -hmm. what is hell. Royalty would not know that. So he has to go there to see it for himself so that he would know what his future subjects might endure. So he could, you know, he could lift them up from it or save them from it. 
I thought that was a, a fascinating idea because most most of our leaders don't really coach. Really. There's your Orpheus <laughs> right there, right? Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> and in a sense, I wanted to take readers through a, a type of hell because that is what a lot of these characters are, are going through. And even for Trinidadians to use this type of device, because even me, who lives in Trinidad, was unaware of a lot of these situations. You might have had a vague illustration of it, and those people might have had smiles on their faces in the illustrations of all as well. But to really delve deep into it is like getting a glimpse into hell. But in a sense, you you know where you, you get where you come from. Mm -hmm. So even for people of the country, there's something new to them. Um, nature plays a huge part. I mean, we, we obviously, we're obviously in the realm of... We're in the realm of people, but we're also in the realm of ghosts, and we're in the realm of of, of nature as well. There's phenomenal. Your writing on nature um, is a beautiful thing. Um, there's something about that that's being subsumed by the, the new world order and the and the war as well. I, I suppose, isn't there? I read somewhere that you used to be a biology teacher. So does it come from that, or is it just always front and center in the Trinidadian experience, this sort of nature? It is both. I mean, I, I studied biology and worked as a biology teacher for. Uh, more than a decade but you know while studying for that and the lead up and working in the field of it you've come to see and learn a lot of fascinating things about Caribbean biodiversity and to the point where if you look at it long enough the, the Caribbean almost becomes synonymous with you know the, this type of biodiverse environment that we have but there's also something about the survival of the fittest and natural selection that is a constant occurring force throughout the you know, wildlife. And I thought about that when I was thinking about the characters of Hungry Ghosts, because that is essentially what all of them want to do in one way or the other, is survive, is to keep their heads above water. So there are a lot of animal descriptions in the book that naturally flow into descriptions of the characters, the humans in there, as if, you know, they are part of the landscape and part of the Caribbean tapestry as well. The animals, nature is indifferent to what's happening in the human realm, which is kind of rather nice. I like how those, I like those, they're almost juxtapositions where something hor horrific happens in the, in the human realm and then there's just some croaking frogs yeah. kind of not taking any notice and kind of looking the other way. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> it's written like that. There's a bit of exit pursued by a bear in there yeah. as well. I kind of like it. Um, let's talk uh, then about about your characters. Um, I wondered who. I mean, th there's a there's a man that's disappeared. There are twins who reminded me a bit of Romulus and Remus, talking about you know fables and and and, and things like that and founding myths. Um, and then there is there are Marley and Hans who have a, such a spectacular and fascinating relationship in the book. Who did you start with? Who's sort of story arc were you most did you kind of sketch out first i wonder who perhaps even is your main character in inverted commas and if that's how you started with whether you had them all sketched out in a neat flow chart on the uh, hussein wall the hussein study <laughs> she's definitely a, a force to reckon with in the book the book actually starts with mali and everyone else branched out from mali because mali represents the performative nature that Trinidadians had to kind of take on at the time because although her ethnicity is you know is unknown mm -hmm. she takes on the role almost this this legendary role of this very refined British-like woman who lives in an estate 
And at first, she's kind of been forced to perform that role because that is what her husband likes or what prefers her to be. And she's definitely gained a lot of privilege and fear from that role and a bit of mystique. And I saw her as being representative of some of the other people in the story because she is not herself. And it is... No one knows where yeah, she comes from. Yeah, no one knows where she comes from. No one knows what's her real name. And you, you find out <laughs> that she kind of adopted that name as well. Yeah. And it is as if she has forgotten everything about herself. She doesn't know where the old self would have ended and where this new kind of ship of Theseus kind of self. She's rebuilt herself with a patchwork of... Jane Austen novels and literature she would have locked herself in a room and read all these books and built up an an image like a, a, a strange image of what she believes is refinement and what she believes would, would allow her to survive in this culture and that idea is what spread to the rest of the characters in the book Yes, and she's taken on the kind of tropes of, of some sort of colonial, yeah, as you say, refinement or what was read as such in in those times. And I suppose that's that's how she's got to live very literally the house on the hill, right, I suppose, as well. I was wondering this when I was reading the book and I've been itching to ask you how in control you are of your characters once you've set them off on this journey, and especially someone like Marley that's a self-invention but also a force of nature, it seems, how in control you are... <laughs> Three quarters of the way, but three quarters of the way through the writing of the book, I wonder if you kind of looked at what you had and went, "Wow, these guys have gone nuts," <laughs> or whether it's all part of the grand design. Let's say I were to mentally sketch a character in my mind. You know, the first thing that you would have to think about is what is their desire, and or what is the what is the conflict that is or the barrier that is preventing them from attaining this this thing that they want. Whether it is to build a house on a village or whether it is just simply to be a teenager at peace, or I say whether it's to get this house on the hill like mm-hmm. for, for yourself, or to start a romance with this person. So all that came to mind, like when I was, you know, I said the, the Hussein wall of characters <laughs> and connecting them, I think about what does each character want? What are they willing to do to get that thing that they want? How far are they willing to go? Who are they willing to sacrifice? What are they willing to sacrifice? So... There are some characters that, yes, they remain grounded. Some of them, I did have plans for them, like marker points. And because the, even though it's an ensemble cast of characters, the actions of one greatly influenced the others. So when it came to it, you, you had rogues in there, like Marley and Hans, for example. And in a sense, there were ideas I had with them that did not, in the final product... I mean, I'm very pleased with how it is in the final product, but at times they felt like friends that you tagged along with, and then all of a sudden they kind of betrayed you in a way, in the most interesting of ways. But, and you know, sometimes you just go with the flow. Yeah. And I wanted readers to feel like that, like these are people I could get behind, and then, oh, no, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> and it's like that for the writing process as well. Yeah. It's your debut novel, and... This is something presumably that I mean you've got you've got a great handle on them, but it's nice to feel that I just wanted to ask you that question because I felt that they I felt that they'd become unruly somehow, you know, in, in on the page they they kind of they're so willful I guess and they you know they they kind of get they kind of run away with things as well. Is there a Hussein wall chart by the way in your study? Is there a thing that that tracks? How do you, do you sort of plot it out? 
Post-it note by post-it note. There's a Hussein Wood document. I'm now always using the, the full uh, name There's here. a notepad that I carry around like, at yeah. the supermarket if I'm standing in line. Like, oh, yeah, let me sketch this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found this to be quite a gothic novel in, in, in lots of ways. There's a lot of weather. There's, as we know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nature. And, and although it's in different nature, there's a lot of everything. It's very strong stuff. Mm. It made me wonder what you read growing up, actually, Kevin, and like whether you were... A typical shoegazing teenager and your literary tastes, and we're into into sort of Frankenstein and Dracula and these sorts of things. Not that like, not that these are explicit in it, but that there is a there is a hauntingness to this. Well, I guess it wouldn't surprise you. I read a lot of Stephen King right. <laughs> when I was yeah. a teenager, and read a lot of poetry by. And it's, it's it's not horror poetry, but there's a lot of gloom in it. A lot of Sylvia Plath mm. and Anne Sexton, you know those those kinds of poets. And well, you know Poe. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I was attracted to as a teen. It would have branched out from that. Is actually when in my a few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, I read a book called No Pain Like This Body. Mm-hmm. It's a Caribbean. It's a by Trinidadian, and it recently got a re-release. And it's set in you know in a barrack as well. It's a, it's, it's it's quite a short book, but there's a way in which you know that book used um, weather as well. And in Trinidad, the weather can get pretty loud you know, yeah. at, at times during the hurricane season. And there is a a natural horror to that. And I was thinking, you know, usually when there's such bad weather, I think, oh, I'm, I'm glad to be in my house. <laughs> and then I was thinking about, well, what if we combine this idea of the barrack and hurricane season? Like, you don't even have a place that's sturdy because... The barrack is described as a place a small wind could shift the entire structure. Yeah, where there's rain lashing yeah. down through the walls and all the rest of it, right? It's visceral stuff. And that itself, it it kind of falls into this, you know, the kind of house horror genre. Yeah. Where we have horrors in both houses, this this dilapidated barrack and the grand estate, which is itself not peaceful at all. Yeah, so there there is this, there is a kind of judgment being meted out by by the storms and by the the trinidadian weather and then we've got all these layers and layers of ghosts and bones and all the rest of it from indentured laborers and all sorts of different things they all seem to have something like a bit of a, a greek chorus as well there's something you can it's not done explicitly really but you there is something about that you never allow the reader to forget Trinidadian history, I suppose, right, and and all those layers and layers. Was that how important was that to you to be to nod towards the history of Trinidad without um, being constantly explicit and banging at people over the head? That's an excellent point to bring up because I really wanted to focus on character and the current setting of those characters. The current setting of those characters, I mean, is quite limited. There's um, a lot of raw wildlife and is very subjected to weather. But there was so much else going on in Trinidad at the time. So I wanted to give the idea of there's much more out there than what is depicted in the book. And that much more is actually influencing this small circle of characters there. So we went into uh, the capital, Port of Spain, like where the um, the soldiers would have been stationed. So there's a, there's a small chapter on that. Mm-hmm. And most of these here... Uh, to kind of compare, like you you use that to compare the living conditions of the characters. Because, I mean, if you were to read just about these characters living in a barrack, you might think the entire entirety of Trinidad maybe lives like that. Mm. 
but there's so much luxury and wealth spread out in other places that looking into this historical context and places of Trinidad gives that kind of stark contrast. Yeah, yeah and it's, it really is. It's a difficult thing to get right, though, right? How how explicit and how implicit to do and to have these chapters and all the rest of it. But it's really good. Was there a simple fact that you needed to tell people what Trinidad is and was? But people, this is a book that will be read around the world, one hopes. Not everybody not everybody has a shorthand for Trinidad, I suppose, as well. Yeah, when when I when I first started to write it, I actually didn't think of it being published widely or anything like that. I thought it would have been maybe a small, you know, regional, regionally published book, which I would have been fine with. I mean, of course, this is great, but... Uh, it's easy if you'd say yeah. that now. <laughs> but I was expecting, you know, for, for that to happen. But um, when, so when it was published, I a lot of the words, a lot of the language in there, and of course, the, the dialogue is in Trinidadian Creole English. And I use a lot of our plant names and animal names and foods and so on and there's a I wanted nothing to be glossarized I wanted yeah. like if you if you want to know what is bygone choker for example you you could look it up and you could maybe even try to make it uh, because I know what is sashimi even though I'd never had it um, before two or three years ago <laughs> so and you know I eat it now and I love it as a way to kind of get the culture out there. But it's also, you know, I, I wanted it to be, I don't know how to say it, a very Trinidadian book. Yeah. Filled with all words and phrases and types of, of characters and cultures. But also to show the East Indian and Hindu population, which can, I don't want to say often, but it can get go unrepresented, underrepresented in Trinidadian, the tapestry. Because I've spoken to a number of people, they, they didn't know that there was such a large Indian population in Trinidad. Yeah. Because, um, you know, there are books that puts it out there. But again, it can be underrepresented. So I wanted to represent this aspect of it. It zings with the aliveness of the of the place. It's such an it's such a visceral. Your descriptions are so visceral. It's properly alive. I mean, it feels like feels like everyone that's read this book has probably felt like they've been there, and it makes people alternatively hungry and <laughs> scandalised. <laughs> and of course, Google was exercised during the reading of this book. I have to have to admit for certain things. And you mentioned that, and thanks for bringing that up. I meant to ask you about that mix, as you say, these beautiful these beautiful prose descriptions of things and your narrative voice is extremely well tuned but then we have the the, the creole or the patois mm -hmm. as well and i love how you go from one to the other i guess it starts off you need to get into the reader needs to get used to that but it's totally essential to for these people to sound like they sounded or sound like they still sound now i suppose right do you ever have a wobble or or think about how that might be toned down or incorporated in a different way it feels to me that you probably hadn't, but I, I, I wonder in the editing process, things become amalgamated and things fall off, don't they? So an interesting story about this is that, um, well, I'm no stranger to the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Mm. And it's a lot easier to write a short story with, you know, the Trinidadian Creole English than, let's say, an entire novel. And the first time, uh, which would have been back in 2015 or 16 or so, I used to enter the competition writing stories in basically standard English, you know, the Queen's or the King's English, so mm -hmm. to speak, and actually set away from anything that was distinctly Trinidad. And 
I never got through, never shortlisted or anything. And one day I I wrote a story that was narrated in Trinidadian Creole English. And I noticed it was like the day before submission, I'd forgotten. And I said, Oh no, I have nothing to to submit. So like at midnight, I just clicked that story and submitted it. And it won the regional prize. And then it, then later on, I won the overall prize. But when I was speaking I to the... how you set it up by saying you're no stranger to it. I had yeah. read that you'd won this prize. So yeah. I was like, when's he, gonna, when's he just going to say... And, and uh, it turned out I attached the file and it won. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. Sorry so, to interrupt you anyway. No, that's fine. Because I said I'm, that was actually what gave me kind of the big confidence to, to go ahead and do it. Mm. It's not like it hasn't been done before. But... For me personally, uh, there's Trinidadian Creole English isn't something that you're taught how to write in Trinidad. You speak it all the time, mm. and but there's no fixed way to spell the words, or there's really no grammatical rules or anything. You really just have to listen to how you speak and how other people speak. And then there's different generations that speak differently. So some because this is an older generation, not people any modern, they might not speak like them. They would actually, it would have morphed. Mm -hmm. So the dialect is so flexible and malleable that there's so many different variations. And you can imagine that this, this, this could be very intimidating to put on a page. Um, also, it's because when, you know, when you're little and you're in primary school, you're taught that is a very dirty way to talk. So it's actually a kind of um, almost socio-political decision that I made yeah. to write the prose with such, with almost ancient language sometimes, a theatrical language fitted in or make it flow with our Trinidadian Creole English to show that, oh, all of it belongs together. None is greater than the other. And it can work um, quite beautifully. So that was my decision with it because I believe that if, if Anthony Burgess could write A Clockwork Orange, and he could make up and he could make up an entire language and everybody could understand it. Even me could understand it just fine. Yeah, you could understand um the dialect in this book. I think Irvin Welsh is also high fiving you somewhere yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from somewhere far yeah. away as well. Um and yeah, because you're right, it is it's it's such an interesting thing. And you get you I mean, I got used to it very quickly and I loved it. I love the sound of it. And just finally, um I just wanted to ask you what's like now promoting this book. Does it feel more or less real than when you're in the thick of writing it? Does it feel like it's it's this artifact and now I get to now it's thank God it's finished and now I get to go out and and talk about it. How do you feel about it now? When I was a teenager, just writing for for myself, really, I would have uh, from time to time, let's say once a year, so I'd have a dream that I would have a book published and and there's a, a box of it <laughs> would get shipped to my house, and then I would go on the internet and I would see it there or somebody reading it, and. Be, being a writer wasn't something that was was, let's say, a, a reality like that kind of writer, but you know because of the internet and because of you know Skype and Zoom <laughs> and all these things we could do, it has suddenly become a reality that you can do it based in, in your land. So it doesn't feel like that dream anymore where I'm like pinch pinch me and wake me up because I know it's been it's been a, a long road a lot of work and it does feel like I'm very very lucky <laughs> to, to do it so that's how I feel 
you are no stranger to all sorts of literary successes <laughs> than yeah. we might say. It's a wonderful <laughs> book, and also we should say it's very handsomely published with a Peter Doig uh, yeah. painting on the on the cover of the hardback. At least it is Hungry Ghosts, and its author is Kevin Jarrett Hussain. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for having me. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Kevin Jared Hussain. And Hungry Ghosts is out now and published by Bloomsbury. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the programme. Thanks also to Emily Sands. And we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you for tuning in. <laughs>